Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit, and we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. All right, welcome to episode 80. Gotta love these nice round numbers on the show. We're on episode 80 of the Future Blogs to Creators. We're here today to answer all of your questions and hang out and be ridiculously goofy. I'll be answering the questions and Barrett will be taking on the second half of that task. Yep, that just happened. (laughs) Chewbacca has joined the chat. All right. All right. How are you doing today, Barrett? (laughs) I'm green. It's been a long week. I am green because it's the last thing on my calendar for the week. I just have like a few hours of nothing to end things on. Sun's come out. Yeah. Anyways, long week. The president has coronavirus. So that is a thing. If you've been listening all along, then you know that we actually started this podcast as a response to trying to be a voice of stability and kind of source of community for people during the coronavirus pandemic. It turns out it has not gone away. We are more than six months into the show, 80 episodes, and it's still happening. And now the president and Melania Trump have coronavirus. I will admit, I am not a big fan personally of Mr. Trump. However, I wish them the best in recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Regardless of who a person is, I always want them to be safe and healthy. But yeah, anyways, heck of a week. A lot of stuff going on in the world, including the startup world. So it's been interesting just to kind of see things feel like there's these little like explosions of energy here and there around certain topics. So I'm green. How you doing? I'm probably yellow today. I'm like, I'm tired after this week. Like you said, it's been a long week, just a lot of of work to do, planning for the next quarter, all of that. And then just kind of like, man, it has been a year. We're officially nine months, you know, as of what, yesterday, three quarters of the way through the year. It's quite the year. I don't know what other Game of Thrones style twists we're going to get at the end of this season of 2020. The president getting coronavirus is definitely one of the way you're like, I'm not surprised, but I'm also like totally surprised, you know, we'll just see how it all plays out. Yeah. The next debates, everything else. It's wild. And then just kind of you and I were talking this week, revisiting our approach as leaders during a pandemic, a time of crisis, you know, difficult times. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh man, going back to everything that we wrote in March and how we showed up for the team and the way we positioned the company. And it's just like, I expected to be through that by now, you know? Yep. I don't know that I fully thought to the details, but the version who wrote everything I did in March did not expect to be facing the exact same problems in October. So I think that that's just kind of got me down a little bit, but the weekend comes in a matter of hours Mm -hmm. and I might just call it after this episode. I have certainly thought about that as well. (laughs) I am like macro level yellow, orange, micro level in this moment, green. Yeah. We got that going for us. Yeah. In updates on the ConvertKit side, we announced some changes to our organizational structure. Normally, what that means is people are getting laid off. At ConvertKit, it just means we're literally making changes to the structure and everyone's still going to be here. The most exciting news, though, that our previous marketing designer, who is now creative director, she's been on the show before, Charlie, announced that she's becoming creative director on the team. That's really exciting. She's going to lead a brand team that's going to really work on building awareness in the market, leading all of our kind of visual identity, brand story, and all of that good stuff. So we're really excited for her. We also opened up just a bunch of leadership pathways for a number of different people people across the team, which is really exciting. You know, that was like a lot of work. It's always a lot of work to handle organizational change and make sure you're communicating carefully and thoughtfully. And we're kind of on the downslope of that communication now, which feels really good. So shout out to Charlie. Congratulations. It's really fun. If you want to follow her on Twitter, she's Charlie Prangley, C-H-A-R-L-I, 
no E, and then Prangly. Okay, let's get into it, Nathan. What is the deal today? We are doing questions. It's Q&A Friday. We've got a decent number of questions that have been teed up, but we always take more live in the chat. So if you got your questions, drop them in. Oh man, there's so many. Where would we go first? So Teddy asked us to dive in and share a little more about promotion process. What does creative director mean? What we're thinking about that with Charlie's promotion. So this has been something that has been in the works. I'd say we've been working towards it as we do with all promotions at ConvertKit for nine months to a year, somewhere in there of conversations. What's interesting to you? Where do you want to go? Where would you need to level up in order to be ready for that promotion? And then probably the last three months in particular has been like the concerted conversations around it. Mm -hmm. So the way we think about creative director, it's still a very design heavy position, but it's taking our brand and bringing it to this broader market. So if you've heard us talk about our $2 million in ad spend that we're queuing up, we actually had a great call one yesterday and another today with our marketing partners on that, just looking at creative copy, video ad concepts and all that. Charlie as creative director is leading that entire effort. And that's been really cool to see. And so she'll also be pulling together, you know, the creator sessions and the stories and the films that we're producing and everything else to build the future of our brand. Yep, exactly. It's super exciting. I think it's going to kind of unite the brand vision while also allowing what was previously one marketing team. We're just kind of dividing it into two halves that'll allow more focus on the brand side and then on kind of the more product marketing and account acquisition side. So I don't know if there's anything else there really. I mean, it's a big move for her. It's the right title for where she is in her career, reflects the value she provides to the organization. And I'm just excited for all the creative work that's going to come out of it. I mean, we're obviously creators ourselves. My biggest outlet for that, I feel like at this point is really the output of the company, right? just kind of guiding it to be reflective of the market we serve and like you listening to the podcast. So I'm excited to take that to another level, even with this kind of more focused org structure with Charlie in that role. Love it. Noah asks, and I like this question, what are some of the most significant changes in the creator landscape in the past 10 years? 2010 to 2020, what are some of those big changes? Well, I think the two biggest ones are like, we went from blogging being the primary thing Mm -hmm. to blogging, podcasting, and what we call YouTubing, which is like calling something a Kleenex, even though it's a tissue. Right but making videos online. And so I think kind of a lot of what we've seen over time is just the addition of the multimedia stuff of not just written content, but many different forms of media driven content. And I think that's been like the driver of pretty much everything else. I might caveat that here in a minute, but I think I believe that to be true. And so we've just seen different expressions of that over time. Podcasting is still kind of podcasting. It's interesting. It's kind of been on this slow growth. Mm -hmm. And now you see like the world's biggest athletes starting podcasts. You know, we talked about it the other week, Michelle Obama, Joe Rogan, like you've got these massive names with shows and they're becoming more mainstream in terms of listenership, right? which means they will become more mainstream in terms of the hosts. And then on the video side, what's interesting there is we went from like maybe documentaries and like longer form films were the early kind of what was spreading. And then you get more of the like vlogger type personality. And that's just like made videos shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until now we have TikTok, Instagram stories, like 15 second clips, Mm -hmm. right? is basically the unit of video on the internet today. And I think that has completely changed the way we market, interact, build community. And the last thing I'll say on the audio front is as we see these audio only apps popping up, there's like four or five now that are trying to do what Clubhouse kind of started. They're basically conference calls, right? but they're just presented in a pretty UI where everyone can have a conversation. 
I'm interested to see where that goes. Like that's like the democratization of podcasts. It's like making everything more accessible and more of a social network format, I suppose. You know, that makes me think of a trend that makes it really easy to dismiss things early on. And then you realize like, whoa, there is something different there is when something new comes in, we tend to look at it and go, oh, that's just right. You look at Clubhouse and you're like, conference calls for the San Francisco Bay Area? Like, what what are we doing here, you know? Or when Twitter first came on, like, wait, I have a full blog. Why would I want a blog that limits me to, you know, a tiny amount? Any of these other things, as you see platforms come and go, Vine, TikTok, et cetera, even ones like Meerkat or Periscope that you thought were going to take off in some way and rode a wave that died out. It's interesting how these little mechanics really, really matter. Who's on it early, the little details of the user experience, things like that. I was even thinking about email. You know, we're looking at Substack, what we're trying to do with ConvertKit and everything else. And it's kind of interesting of email is still a great method for consuming content, but it's been somewhat broken in the way that you produce the content. So I was even thinking about a startup that I would love to see is like a family, family social network. So kind of like Path was back in the day, but for family updates and baby photos and stuff like that, you know, because I was like, oh man, am I sending on the iMessage thread to be like, hey, here's the latest photo of my nine month old to like 15 family members. That doesn't quite work, but I'm not going to get everyone to download a special app or anything like that. And so it's like, oh, what I need is the app for the input that gives me that social network quality experience and then email for the output because then anyone that I give access to could be on that. And so I think that's kind of where Substack is heading. I think Clubhouse has some interesting angles on that. And so it'll just be interesting to see some of these old distribution methods get revived with new angles on them. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd say one of the other big things that's completely changed is just the degree to which algorithms determine what we get to pay attention to. So much of our feeds and maybe podcasts is like still kind of that way. But like, if you think about how you discover things today, search like Google search, or is there anything else? DuckDuckGo maybe? Yeah. Like podcast directories, Spotify for music. YouTube and their algorithm, even Twitter showing you what they think is most relevant, not what happened most recently. Right. So much of what's changed is that companies are saying we can find out faster and more accurately than you yourself can what you want to see. I don't know how I feel about that because it basically takes away your ability to curate and choose. And I think one of the things that has made email apps staying power is that that has stayed to a relative minimum. Mm -hmm. You know, the most that's happened there is Google sorting stuff into like main social promotions and spam. Right. But other than that, you mostly still have control over what you get via email. I think that's why SMS has made a little bit of a comeback in terms of marketing too, because as more providers start to apply filters to email too, SMS becomes the next place where you still have complete control over what you get and don't get. Now, there's a whole bunch of other problems with that, but I think there's still this like deep desire for people to have ultimate control and intention behind what they are and aren't seeing. Mm -hmm. And that's changed a lot in terms of even tools that are available where that can happen. Like Twitter technically still has a tiny little button. You can click to see most recent tweets, but after two hours or something, it goes back to let us show you most relevant again. And I'm like, no, I follow 200 people so that I can see everything. Stop doing that. It's annoying. Right. So anyways, it's fascinating the degree to which algorithms have changed things. The other part of Noah's question is market entrance. Mm. Like who has come into the space? And the first one that came to mind for me that I think was fundamentally a game changer is Gumroad. Mm. Because I look back at selling digital products in 2011 versus in 2012 when they launched, I think it was a night and day difference. You know, because before that we were looking at ClickBank or Mm -hmm. eJunkie. You know, so I think that was a huge, a huge addition of like a great checkout experience. I'm trying to think what other major entrance. I mean, I think Instagram. Right. Like when did Instagram come out? 
2011, 2010. Instagram completely changed everything. I think they took a lot of that feeling that you were talking about and we can talk about how that's changed. But early on, it was like, here's my life and imagery. Right. Because we are like words are an approximation for how we actually process information as as like beings. Mm -hmm. Humans are fundamentally visual. We're meant to interpret a visual world and take action based on that. And text was just a way to not have to have a story driven culture. Right. Right. And so going back to imagery, back to video makes sense because that we're social, right? We're social and we interact with the physical world is how we were built and how our brains process. And so it makes sense that a visual platform is attractive to us. What that's done to us is it's made us, or a lot of people, it's made us curate ourselves online to only show little bits and pieces here and there. Right. Another one of those stories from this week, you know, it just feels like everything is always on fire, but Chrissy Teigen mm-hmm. sharing her and John Legend's loss of their child. She's like maybe the extreme other example where she's like combating this curated sense with, I'm going to tell you everything as it's happening real time. And there's a lot of backlash against this curation that has come, I think partially from algorithms showing you curated photos that get the most likes and stuff, right? Right. And so all this stuff ends up getting intertangled in terms of how we use the internet as creators. Yeah, it's super interesting. Well, we should get to some more questions. We've got a great one from Emily Mills here in the chat. From what I've seen, leadership promotions for creatives in in-house roles often means transitioning from hands-on creative work to doing more guiding and planning leading. So the question is, do you think it's possible for good creative leaders to still have hands-on work? And are creators who want to stay creating doomed to stay in lower roles? Yeah, this is a great question. I think it reflects at least some sense of reality, for sure. Mm-hmm. Leadership and specifically people management is its own job. Whether it has to be a completely full-time job is something we've always kind of questioned and challenged at ConvertKit. Yeah. Especially you, I think, have pushed on that. Can we continue to get good creative work or good productive work from managers in addition to their management and leadership of people? The higher up in an organization you go and the bigger an organization organization gets, the harder and harder that is. Like the number of hours I spend actually making stuff these days is very small compared to the number of hours I spend managing and kind of like building strategy and laying the groundwork for everyone else. Yeah. However, in this kind of role, our vision for it is definitely, yes, she will still be designing. Mm -hmm. Now, will it be as much as before? No, but that was already true. You know, Charlie was already elevating the level of contribution in terms of strategic thinking, contribution, like pushing forward of projects. And so this in a way kind of formalizes what was already happening. And so in the engineering context, you know, the engineering equivalent would be writing code versus managing people who write code. And the way engineering culture has solved that is there's kind of two paths. There's the people management path, and then there's the principal engineer path. A principal engineer is like very senior, very well-paid, highly respected writer of code. Yep. For their entire career. And that's a different but equally acceptable path to being a manager of other engineers. There are similar but not equal paths on the creative side. I definitely think it's harder. You know, there's not like a, or at least in our company, there's not like a principal designer. This is as close as it gets. It's like to be the principal designer or design influencer in the company, you also get to manage people. Right. So there is some trade-off there. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah. You know, having lived this out, I was thinking about the number of people that you have reporting up to you in that split in time. It's like 47. Yeah. Have you ever counted that? (laughs) It's a lot. 
just the way we have our org structure, like the majority of the company reports up into you, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to spend a lot of time. And so the first thing is to say management and leadership is its own discipline and that we believe you should get really good at it. In the same way that if you were a designer and you're like, oh, I do code or I don't code, you know, that is a separate, but very closely related discipline. So in this case, right, like leading people managing is separate discipline. You should treat it as such in how you're learning and everything else. Like don't expect to just dive in and be like, yeah, I'm a manager now and I know everything about it. I've walked this line over the last probably five years in particular as ConvertKit has grown of how much to be hands-on creative versus letting it go. And actually the last, maybe this summer in particular, I've used design as a creative outlet and designs that have made it into the product. So actually, I think I've got four or five mm probably four landing page designs, you know, that have released over the last four months or so that are actually my design, like all the way through. I went in Figma, you know, designed them out and that's been really fun. And then same with the email templates. We're releasing this batch of email templates. And that's been like my creative outlet to dive in, especially because it's so constrained in what you can do with email templates because of CSS rendering and everything. Mm-hmm. It's very limited. So it turns into kind of this fun challenge that is completely different from managing people and all of that. Yeah. So I love what Teddy mentioned, quoting Brian Gardner, who founded StudioPress and then later sold it. I need to be a CEO who designs, not a designer who CEOs. It's like, what is your main job? In this case, my main job is to be CEO. But if I want to fill 10% of my time with some design, absolutely. But I think going back to Emily's question, it's important to every organization that both paths are equal. Engineering gets the most correct. Oh, say over the last five years, I think it's been a big change of being able to continue to move up levels as an individual contributor or as a manager in that path split. And that to be equally respected, equally paid. Mm -hmm. I think design has a ways to go to have that same level of progress in the industry, but it'll totally happen. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And there would have been a path for that, you know, and there was a path for that, I think, for Charlie and anyone else to keep growing as a designer yeah. to be paid in similar ways. And so it's really, it really comes down to individuals, goals, organization needs. A lot of that stuff has to overlap. Yep. Okay. For our next question, I saw a can of worms sitting over here and I thought we would just open it. Ooh, I didn't open the can of worms. Teddy did. Hold on. I got to find the exact thing. Talk about this Coinbase thing, period. And he just leaves it at that, which there's all kinds of thoughts. We've been talking about it. The whole internet has. It applies at the corporate level. It applies at the individual creator level. Mm-hmm. Barrett, talk about this Coinbase thing. Okay, so let's lay some groundwork here in case people are listening who could not care less about most tech things. <laughs> First of all, Coinbase is a company that works entirely on blockchain technology, mostly in cryptocurrency, specifically with Bitcoin. That's kind of the foundation of their business. They have been up to now highly respected as a high-performing organization, kind of leading the way in what cryptocurrency can look like, what role it can play in society, and this attempt to transform financial ecosystems to serve more people more equitably. That's kind of the mission that they're on. Their CEO, Brian Armstrong, I have no idea how old he is, well-respected in kind of tech circles, highly thought of, very high-level thinker. He kind of lives in the future. You can see that in the way that he thinks and the way he leads. He comes out with this memo this week to his company that says something along the lines of, we are not going to talk about political or social issues at work unless they directly relate to the financial system we are trying to change and will help us do better work in that vein. That was the summary of the memo, I think. Yep. He just said it in 4,000 more words. Yes. And I don't know. I don't know what was going on internally. I have no idea. I saw one thread from a woman named Erica Joy on Twitter who said she spoke to multiple Coinbase employees. This might be hearsay. This is just what I saw saying that after George Floyd was killed and Black Lives Matter protests 
erupted across the country in anti-police violence and anti-racism, Coinbase was slow to respond. A lot of customers asked a lot of companies to say what they think about it and to come out in support, ideally, of the protest movement. We did that. We were very quick to do that. It was very important to us. We listened to our team, listened to our customers, and made sure we were in alignment. Brian Armstrong, kind of late in the game, probably like a weekish after most people had said something at that point, made a thread on Twitter. I want to say unequivocally that Black Lives Matter and went on. And apparently that, what led up to that and what followed that was a lot of what led to this memo this week. I think he felt forced into saying something publicly, even though regardless of his views on it, he did not want to. And that conversation continued over time, that people wanted him and the company to be vocal about some of these social issues. This memo was kind of like him reasserting his own leadership and his right to say, this is who we are and how we're going to be. So that's the context. It rings very similar to me. It is not the same. It rings very similar to me, though, to an economist named Thomas Sowell's comments. Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, comments that the greatest good a business can do for society is to make more profit. That is their job. That is a certainly purely capitalist market economic theory way to look at the whole thing. What I believe is that businesses over time have done a very poor job of truly thinking long-term in the decisions they make beyond what is immediately profitable to them to the harm of their long-term profitability. Mm -hmm. An example of this that's easy to pick on, and so I will admit that up front, would be the cigarette industry. The cigarette industry knew decades before it was publicly accepted that cigarettes were carcinogens, or I guess the materials within the cigarettes were. Right. And they also knew that was very threatening to them. But rather than adjust for that and figure out business strategy that would do less harm to individuals and build long-term profitability by doing something that wouldn't kill people, they ignored it and kind of like put it in the closet and tried to keep it away from the public eye. I just want to note, put it in the closet is a, probably not a good metaphor. And so let me just say they put it away out of the public eye was what they, where they wanted to keep it. And they just kept making money off cigarettes. Right. And that is the same line of thinking that is being communicated to me. in this Coinbase memo is if we, we can ignore everything else and just stay in our lane Mm -hmm. and that will make us have the biggest impact. That might be true in terms of making the most money. It might be true in terms of impact. I also think though, if you willfully ignore everything that surrounds your business and society, that you are likely to create externalities, negative externalities through your actions. Right. That lead to bad outcomes for people. And so I personally want to lead in such a way, and I would really love for other business leaders to lead in such a way that takes those things into account, that actively tries to do no harm in the process of pursuing their mission or do minimal harm. Mm -hmm. And I think it left something to be desired in that area, the memo that he sent. Yeah, I think that it tries to live in this world of like, ah, we're a business and we do business things. Please keep the conversations focused on our business activities. Thank you. You know, then they followed it up with saying like, look, if that doesn't work for you, here's an exit package you can leave. There is a lot that I respect about this. And so I want to outline a couple of those things there. One, clarity is often hard to come by in a complicated world where there's so many competing priorities. They were very clear. So that's one thing where like, even if everyone disagrees, at least you're communicating clearly. And I believe everyone is perceiving the message that they heard is the message that was intended to be sent. And so it's like, okay, good. We're on the same page here. So they communicated clearly. I believe that leaders owe it to their audiences and communities, whether you're leading a company or, you know, a a community as a creator or anything like that. I believe that you owe that level of clarity, not just sitting on the sidelines, but coming out and saying specifically, this is my mission. This is our mission. This is where it overlaps with what's going on in the world. These are the issues and causes that we're going to champion. 
Or on the other side, say like, nope, that is not a stance that we're going to take. We, you know, we're not going to weigh in. So I always, always appreciate that clarity. And we've had those conversations of saying, you know, we've had all of our actions this year and the steps that we've taken, but even trying to be more clear to the team and define it down to principles of which issues we're stepping into and maybe which ones we're not. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was really good. It sparked a lot of conversation. I do have respect for someone diving in and saying like, this is our mission and we're laser focused on it because you can get distracted in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. With all of that, I don't think that you can do that, that you can say we are focused on achieving this one thing and we're going to do it and ignore everything else. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that works in today's world. I think it will ultimately hurt them long term. I don't think it's the stance that companies should take. But maybe you do take a stance like if you look at Patagonia, they have their new tag on their clothing that says vote the assholes out. That could be talking about a ton of different issues, mm-hmm. right? But the one they always come back to is the environment and climate change. When Patagonia is asked, what do you, what do you mean? Could you could you define the assholes? And they say anyone who is de- denying climate change, the effect on the planet. Right. So they they're not making every issue their primary issue. Mm-hmm. You know, they have statements unequivocally in support of Black Lives Matter. And they've, they've done a lot, but they didn't go and make that their primary issue because they already had one. I'm speculating here, but I, I think that they know that if they tried to make every bit of change in the world equally important for their company, they would dilute their efforts. And so they've said this is the one that we're primarily focused on. Yeah. Yeah. Closing comments on this one are, I don't think there's a universally correct way to run a company. Yeah. I believe that things like this do lead to anti-capitalist sentiment, Mm -hmm. just like the general population. And so I do believe that if we take more of a stance that we owe moral leadership to the communities we serve as business leaders, that that leads to a collective mindset that capitalism can do good beyond just the people who make the profit from it. And I think that's better long-term for the business community. It raised questions for me on, you know, how many black employees are at Coinbase today and whether and how much research they've done on the degree to which the black community has been shut out of the banking system as it exists today and the very financial system that they're trying to subvert and reimagine and whether black technologists will want to be there based on this message. And if they don't, I don't know. Right. And obviously it's not a monolith. People will make individual decisions. But if this leads them to being a less diverse company in terms of background ideas and race, will they build a less equitable financial system? You know, will they just rebuild the same problems that exist today on a, with a new medium, basically? Right. So anyways, those are my thoughts. I don't look at Brian Armstrong as like the devil reincarnated based on this. That's for sure. I think it's a very clear perspective. It's just not the one I would take. That's my summary take on that. Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, We've got a question from Josh here in the chat. He's saying, as people who do a podcast, how would you think about advising people to differentiate themselves in the podcast space versus jumping on this increasing, do a podcast bandwagon with a me too mentality? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I think of this similar to newsletters in a way. You've forever seen on websites, forms, opt-in forms, where you can add your email address that say, get my newsletter. And it's like the least compelling value proposition ever, unless your name is already so recognizable that the person looking at that form says, I just want to know what that person thinks. That is probably not you. Right. And the reason I can say that is that statistically, there are very few people relative to the population who are that interesting. So I think of the same on a podcast where there's got to be some hook 
You know, you either have to have a unique viewpoint or personality or take that makes people want to listen specifically to you or that can grow into just like your personality carries the day. It doesn't matter who's on the other microphone. Or I think you have to have a unique take. Like I've forever had this pitch sitting in my Google Docs of a podcast called something like Of Our Time or Mattering or something like that, that would do interviews with people who are leading organizations or founders of organizations tackling big societal problems. And so that's my angle is like, I want to make a podcast for deep thinkers who care a lot about making positive change in the world by interviewing deep thinkers trying to make positive change in the world. It's probably a really small group of people. You know, most people just don't care that much. But I think there's a unique angle on that. It might be called The Barrett Brooks Show someday, but it's not just Barrett as personality that's trying to carry the day there. Right. Because that's just not the career path I'm interested in. And so I guess my core thing would be, do you have a hook and are you worth listening to? And if so, for who and why? Yeah. I think that's good. It made me think of a quote that I heard a long time ago. I don't know who it was from or anything like that because I probably heard it back in like 2012. But someone was talking about if you want to be interesting on the internet, the trick is to do interesting things off the internet. And it just got me thinking of like, oh yeah, we're looking in the same echo chamber and we're like, how could I write the most interesting tweet? Or like a lot of these tweet storms that you see going around. Someone was like joking about it, but they're like, how to go to a Wikipedia article and resummarize it in a Twitter thread, <laughs> you know? And then they're like a thread. But of course there's no thread because it's just there commentary like that was their joke you know and so you see people doing the same things over again because something starts to work and so we do it and then you think about right some of these most interesting creators the creators with the best youtube content they're not sitting at home doing the same thing over and over again right they're like our friend levi allen who's you know stringing a slack line across a thousand foot canyon and walking across it and you're like i want nothing to do with that but i'll happily watch it you know and, and so if you're going to create a podcast create an instagram youtube channel a newsletter then say okay how can i go live a more interesting life, to form more interesting, unique perspectives, to meet more interesting, diverse people, to shape those perspectives. And then how can I share that? Yep. And so it's like going back and saying, okay, what goes online is just the last 10% of everything else, you know, my lived experience. So let's go live some better experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about it like read interesting books, meet interesting people, do interesting things. Those are like the raw materials for good content. Yeah. We always talk about them. Y'all are going to be so tired of just the three people we talk about. Anyways, James Clear says that whenever he stops reading is when he has a really hard time writing. Yeah. You know, I'm just using his name to reflect my own experience, basically. That's exactly what happens to me. If I'm not reading, I have many fewer ideas about which I can write because every idea is just a spark from another thing. So anyways, yep. I like that. Good advice, Nathan. Sounds good. You should do this for a living. I think that's a good place to start to wrap up on the questions. We'll, we've got some more, so we'll save them for next week. Do you have any creators? I have one resource. Creator of the day. I don't have a creator of the day, actually. Resource of the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, do you have a resource? No, I don't think so. Not this week. I have one. Okay. My resource is the book Almanac of Naval Ravikant. It is an interesting book in that it is written by Naval, but not. So <laughs> Naval is, he's the founder of AngelList. He founded ePinions back in the day, a bunch of other stuff. Angel investor, brilliant individual, and really, I don't know how to describe it, deep thinker, but like he delivers it in a really polished form. And he, he has a podcast and he has lots of tweets. And that's basically it. And so this guy, Eric Jorgensen, went and compiled all of that. So it is all Naval's words. 
you know, it's not like someone's reinterpretation of it, but it's compiled and put into a narrative format and specifically on wealth and happiness. Forwards by Tim Ferriss. It's solid. You can read it for free on the web. And Naval, Naval Manak. I didn't even catch that. Anyway, NavalManak.com. I don't know. Google it. You can read it for free. I got the hardcover copy. It's really solid. A lot of stuff that I read before, but I really like having it in condensed, like all of the thoughts on one issues rather than pulling from all around the web. Love it. I got nothing else for you this week, y'all. Sorry, I've been so heads down with uh, running a company that I slacked on creators and resources of the day. I'll be back next week with something interesting, maybe. I I need to take your advice, Nathan. I need to do something interesting this weekend. That's right. Goodbye, fine people. We love having you listen in live. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. See ya. Adios. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new to launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today.